Audrey. Hi, Agnes. Hi, Robin. Hi, Audrey and Agnes. Um, so this is a very uh, special episode of our podcast because, well, it's really our second episode with a guest, but it's our first episode with a guest who appears visually. <laughs> um, so um, uh, Audrey Palno wrote this really interesting review, book review review. Uh, of Amiya Srinivasan's book, The Right to Sex, it was kind of like, I see it as like book review plus, um, because there was a lot more to it. There was a lot, um, uh, there was just a lot of your own thinking in it. And uh, in particular, I feel like the complaint about her book that you land on is one that I had as well, which is just, what is sex? I want a book about the right to sex to start with like a definition of sex. and uh, it's sort of surprisingly, that question is somehow surprisingly elusive. Um, and I thought we could just start with, actually, I have the, that question for your piece too. <laughs> um, so like you, um, you do address this question, right? So here's like the definition that I came to from reading your piece. And then I thought you could correct me. Um, I thought um, your, um, uh, uh, that was what I came up with a um, essentially reciprocal physical interaction that could produce kids. Okay. Correct that or add to it. Yeah. Um, that seems okay. I think there's like two things that I would add to that. One of which is that it's a, it's an erotic interaction. So it's, mm-hmm. there are other kinds of interactions that are reciprocal that aren't necessarily erotic. Um, the other thing is that what I mean by could produce kids is um, uh, the sense of could there uh, doesn't have to do really with probable probabilities. So I, I really actually just mean that you're doing like the act that characteristically does produce, that characteristically sometimes does produce kids, um, whether or not kids could actually be generated. Like if you've had a hysterectomy and you're like engaged in coitus, I would still call that having sex, even though you are not, there's like a 0% chance that you will conceive a child as part of that. Good. Right. So, um, um, but there, but there might be certain forms of making of where you won't perceive when you won't, when you know, you won't conceive that, that you might differentiate between say like contraception or having hysterectomy or all those cases similar for you. Yeah. So, um, so I would say that the act is altered when you have done something with the goal of altering the act, um, which sounds like a weird, um, maybe maybe a weird distinction. Um, but we do uh, we do have that distinction in other areas of life. So, like um, for instance, uh, if I offer you to do if I offer to do you a favor, um, but I only offer to do it under the circumstances that I'm able to, like. Um, you have a, or maybe I'm going to do, uh, you have a piano concert and you're like, oh, can you come to my piano concert? And I'm like, well, I'd love to come if I'm free, but like, you know, I'm a really busy person. I like my schedule is almost always booked. So when I say I can come if I'm free, I'm like, um, I'm offering something that like may or may not happen. Um, but if I say, oh, I can come if I'm free. And then I go find out what time your piano concert is. And then I go and like schedule something then with the goal of avoiding your piano concert. There's obviously something like either disingenuous about my initial commitment to you, or I'm like failing to follow through with what I said I would do, which was to come if I'm 
you know, or come if I'm able to or something like that. Um, so I think that the difference between having a hysterectomy, because like, say you have uterine cancer and, um, having a hysterectomy because you're like, I don't want to have kids or, you know, I don't want these. And by, I don't want to have kids. I mean, I don't want these, you know, these sex acts that I'm having, that I'm engaging in to result in kids. Um, that that's, that that's in some way, um, analogous to the thing where your, your sex is saying that, Oh, I'll, you know, I'll have a kid if I'm free. Um, and then like, I'm, but I'm going to make sure that I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, and, um, saying I'm going to come if I'm free. I'm like, you know, I'm not free because I don't, don't have uterus anymore. So those are, yeah. So if, if we could make a comparison to other things, we might try to describe or define like a job or a meal or mm-hmm. sleep for each of these things, we could perhaps come up with a similar description of its best or ideal or even mm-hmm. hopefully typical use, yep. but then we would allow or accept a wide range of other uses. Right. Uh, whereas in this case, I think you're, you're wanting to argue against that. So could, could you elaborate on why not only is this a description of the an ideal use of sex, but something you would want to bound or limit other uses? Right. Yeah. Um, so I think the reason that sex deserves to be bounded. Um, so I, I think there's actually potentially a lot of different ways that would be sort of like logically coherent that you could bound what's how you want to do sex. So any version that you come up with is just a proposal and you're saying, well, I just want to offer my proposal as sort of like one coherent way of doing it. Um, And I think a requirement that any coherent um, account of sex should meet is that it should, um, it should like correspond with the other beliefs that we have about sex. Um, And specifically I'm interested in, um, pretty widely held intuitions we have about the importance of consent and sex. So, um, so I'm just going to say what, like, I'm going to just give three examples of like ways that are, we value sexual consent in special ways that are like pretty weird. And that I think most, most accounts of sex that I've met don't like really grapple with how weird that was. And I know some people who just say, no, these, um, these intuitions that you and most people have about consent and how important it is in the sexual sphere are mistaken. So that's one, one way you can respond to that. Um, but I guess I'll just give like three examples of what I mean about sex being like sexual consent being weirdly important. Um, so one is that, um, uh, our, and when I say our, I'm just going to mean my, but like probably also most people I know's view of, um, the importance of sexual consent. So, um, in our view, uh, sexual consent can't really be explained by the other principles that we have about consent or bodily consent in general. Um, so one example, I think I gave it in the article would be, um, there are times when I can do something to somebody's body that I know they don't want to be done. Um, and I can do it for the sake of maybe they're good, but also like the good of other people. So if there's a fire on a subway and I'm in the subway and there's like a guy in front of me and a bunch of people ahead of them and that guy like, I know his like religion is all about, don't ever touch me. Like I would rather die than be touched. Um, I can still like shove him and try to shove the other people off the subway to try to get away from the fire. That seems like kind of unproblematic to me. Like as an, as an example, when you have like an exception of where I can use somebody's body, um, in a way 
that is like sort of serving the good of the good of that person, but also kind of the good of a group, even in a way that they might not like. Um, but if we're, um, if I'm in a situation where like another person being um, like sexually objectified in some way could help the group, um, I don't really think that I can non-consent, I can like non-consensually subject that them to that. So like, I don't think if I want, if I'm in a group of people and we want help and nobody's helping us, but one of the people is really attractive and I'm like, here, take off your clothes. And they're like, no, please. I don't want to take off my clothes to attract attention to our group. I can't sort of like say, well, you know, for the greater good and uh, like strip them down and sort of offer them up as a sexual sacrifice. That's a, I would view that as a violation um, sort of related to the specifically sexual nature of it. Um, So, yeah. And I, I don't think we have, I don't think we can really explain that without saying, okay, well, sex, like sex is clearly in some way an ethically special category. So, um, so if, if consent is especially important for sex, the obvious thing that would suggest is make sure that all the other uses of sex have consent, but you, you want to go farther than that. So, so, so somehow you're using the extra strength of consent in sex to draw a bunch of conclusions that would prevent what other people would think of as consensual sex. Yeah, um, definitely. Um, so I, um, I think having sexual, sexual consent as like a freestanding property of sex is just really weird. Like, okay, we have some activities where like we have tennis, we have like handshakes, we have um, chatting, we have all these different activities. And then we have this one activity sex which like the only way it's ethically different is that consent is like super extra important. That seems like, that seems weird to me, especially given that sex also has some other characteristic things. It's like, Oh, well that's like the erotic activity. Sort of that's like the focal erotic activity, not the only erotic activity. Um, that's like the, uh, that's like the reproductive activity. And it seems very weird to have like consents, extra special importance in the sphere of sex being totally unrelated to anything else about sex. So so then your story is you have a simpler story that's easier to understand about why sex has extra strength of consent. And that theory happens to imply some other things about when it should or shouldn't happen. Yeah. Well, um, I guess when you are talking about the, uh, I mean, I think everyone holds their own views for a variety of reasons. So like I have, everyone's views have a history, but, um, but I, I think one reason uh, to destabilize kind of a view that doesn't take account of that. Uh, so sorry, I guess I should say, I think I'd be very interested in learning about other views about sex that try to relate the importance of consent to the erotic and like reproductive or any other salient aspects of it. Um, and Agnes, I know you mentioned you were like looking at Roger Scruton's book about sex. So I was wondering if he was going to have some sort of like really clever way of doing this. Um, Um, I I think there is an element of the Scruton book that I wanted to bring up with you, but actually, could I just follow up on this consent thing? Because it seems to me that there's on the one hand, the datum that people certainly say that consent is very important for sex and they, they put this emphasis on consent, but in some way, your way of thinking suggests that this is somehow a misplaced emphasis. Like we might say there's something especially important about sex. And one way we get a grip on that is by saying you have to consent, but it's actually not clear that we've gotten a good grip on it by saying that. 
And, um, and actually it's not clear to me that this is unique to sex. So I think that conversation shares this property with sex, which is that consent is not a good model. It's like, in some sense, you've consented to have this conversation with us, right? Right. But you haven't consented like to every speech act that I might say to you, right? right? So what do I have to do? Well, while I'm talking to you, I have to sort of think about like, what am I allowed to say to you? And I could pass boundaries and I could say things I'm not supposed to say to you. And then you could get upset and I'm trying not to do that. Right. And so conversation has a kind of reciprocal structure and consent would be a ridiculous way to do that because I would be like, do you consent to my saying the following sentence to you? And then I'd have to say the sentence and and you didn't have a chance to consent. Right. I think it's a really deep fact about conversation that it works like this. So it actually seems to me like um, it seems to me sex is more like conversation and less like a lot of other things where we might ask someone's permission. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the fact or the datum that we have to account for in our theory is not that consent is especially important for sex, but that sex is somehow especially important or especially sacred or violating someone's will when it comes to sex is really significant, even more significant than conversation. So yeah. even though it has the same structure, the same problematic structure, the stakes are somehow higher. And yeah. then the question would be why, but I do think actually it's just, I think in a way you and Amia and I share the view that there's just been an overemphasis on consent. And that emphasis on consent is part of the kind of liberal modeling of sex on just another thing that you choose to do. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm not. Hmm. In some sense, I think, I think there's an overemphasis on consent in the sense that it's like the only concept we have. And so we have to like put everything into it. Um, and this was something I was talking with somebody else. They were saying like, um, someone was complaining, maybe it was Oliver Trolley, was complaining that the um, there's something weird about saying like the main problem with your boss trying to have sex with you is that it's, sorry, not the main problem. The only problem with your boss trying to have sex with you is that consent is compromised, um, which seems right to me. That's not the only problem. But I actually do think in a lot of these problems, um, I guess I do think consent is extremely important. And so um, like most times when people say there's a problem with consent here, um, I think they're right. Even if the problem isn't necessarily mostly with the other person. Um, So so isn't just the fact that it's very important enough to explain why consent is important. I mean, if you want, you're looking for a, a single fact to use to explain other facts, just saying this is really important. Uh, is enough to explain why you would have to go through extra motions to sort of temporarily take it away from somebody or to take control over it with something that they initially, you know, had control over because it was always like, like somebody's life is, would be a similar thing, right? <laughs> life is really important. So therefore you have to be really careful when you try to take someone's life. Uh, and similarly, you'd want really careful, clear consent. Perhaps that wouldn't even be enough to take someone's life. Yeah. So my intuition is that that whole idea that consent is really important actually is a little bit connected to a background assumption that people are randomly having sex with lots of other people who they don't know. And so I have to check, is it okay if if it's like my spouse and like, suppose we have sex every night and, you know, is wait, do you consent? Right. It it seems like less of an issue. So I do think, um, the, the, the idea that the stakes are potentially really high and something could go really wrong seems much more of an applicable thought for having like lots of promiscuous sex than it is for having the kind of sex that you're thinking about. So that's why I'm also feeling like the emphasis on consent feels like it makes less sense in that context. 
Yeah, no, um, I think that's uh, definitely, well, there's definitely a practical way in which it's, that's true. So like if I'm at a club and I'm tipsy and another stranger is tipsy and we go back and have sex together somewhere, um, there's like a real possibility that like one of us isn't perceiving how tipsy the other person is. One of us feels like they're going along with something they don't want to do or something like that. Whereas with a partner or a spouse or something like that, if you have sex every night and then one night you happen to be tipsy and you also have sex, it's not clear that like um, you haven't done something that's morally dangerous in the same way um, because the context is such that um, it's pretty likely. I mean, again, with you you can come up with counterexamples, right? You got in a huge fight right before and you said, I'm never going to have sex with you again. And then they got you drunk and had sex with you. Okay. That, that compromise consent could be compromised there. Um, or one person was secretly planning to never have sex with the other person and they got drunk and did, but in general, it's like a morally, um, it's, uh, consent is like less likely to be an issue unless you know, it's an issue in a merit in like a, a context of like an intimate partner context versus a stranger context. Right. Um, so I think that's true. Um, so we say so we could agree that there's a higher danger here, right? Uh, we could say that there's there's a bigger, worse thing that could go wrong in many of these contexts. So that's a distinctive feature. And then that would also suggest why you might care more about consent and some of the other things we care about. Right. Or, uh, or like might... a, a likely or worse thing that could go wrong. Right. But then there are many things we let people do that are dangerous. Yeah. Even though you know, they are like climb Everest or something where there's a 1% chance of dying. So we might wonder, is the danger enough to want to sort of set the conservative boundaries of just like never, never risk the danger? Or is there something else that sets the line there that says never risk this danger for some other reasons? Not the danger, I guess it's something else. Yeah. Well, it seems like, you know, like let's bracket the question of like the social question of how we approach it, but just like, okay, how should I, you know, how should I approach it in my own life or something like that? It seems like for a lot of things we do, we try to make we try to make models that explain and give reasons why um, the intuitions that we have that are strong would be upheld. Um, and so that's that's partially what I'm trying to do with sort of an account of sex that includes an explanation of why consent is important. Um, but maybe another area you might, where you might think about this is like drug use. Um, so you might think, okay, well, there's some cases of drug use that I'm like clearly okay with. Um, like I'm depressed, I take antidepressants and that would like, this is an example, you know, that might, and then I go from feeling unable to do things to being like, I can do stuff. Um, or you might have, um, I have an anxiety problem. I take anxiety, anti-anxiety medicine. I'm okay with this. Um, and then you, but you might also have the situation where you're like, okay. Um, or even more extreme drugs, like, um, okay, I'm taking, you know, MDMA to deal with like PTSD or something like that. I'm recalibrating myself. But you also might have situations where you're like, um, okay, I'm taking MDMA because like, I just like to go, you know, have intense feelings, or um, I just like to get high to escape from my life. And some people would approach these questions and say, okay, well, that kind of fun has a place but it's like a limited place. Like you want to make sure that your drug use isn't interfering with the other things you value. Um, But another way you might approach it is like, well, I think, and this is something I think, like I think that my use of drugs should be oriented towards like reality. Um, So uh, 
you know, and I don't necessarily have a, an opinion about people using drugs in religious contexts. Like maybe they're, maybe they're doing that as part of a pursuit of re- reality. They're pr- pursuing religious reality um, or what they perceive as that. Um, but it seems like we often use frameworks like this, like, oh, okay. You know, my drinking has become problematic because it's about escaping things. Um, but that isn't like, uh, yeah. So that's not, I guess what I mean is like we have, we make cost benefit analysis about whether something is harmful, but often we use some kind of like more general ethical framework of like, am I doing this thing for the right reasons? Am I doing it in a healthy way or something like that? Yeah. Or like, um, like, does this accord with reality? Um, not, so I guess, I mean, I think there's a difference between being like, um, I'm going to get like, blackout drunk but I'm only going to do it once a month and like well I don't think you know I'm going to try to not get blackout drunk because like I don't like it seems wrong to to put myself in a context where like I'm doing things that I'm not remembering right because you might you might think that the, the first thing is about health and the second thing is about like um that's just a state that like I as a rational being um, oh yeah, I meant health of your soul, not your body. But yes, okay, I, yeah, I, yeah, I see yeah. your point. Sorry, right. yeah. But if, if you had written an essay about the conservative position on drugs, mm-hmm. then you might have similarly said, "Well, the function, the the ideal or best function of drugs is to help you deal with reality, and this escape from reality function is is less ideal or less approved." And then your stance might just be the conservative position is don't do it, <laughs> don't don't escape with drugs. Uh, and full stop, just draw the line there, right? That that would be an analogous to saying the ideal thing with sex is to have this reciprocal thing related to procreation. And so you should right. do that, but just don't do the other kind. Yeah. Um, right. I take it that's just what Audrey is saying. She is. She right. Is so we're trying to summarize it. So, so I guess the question I want to ask is now, like, what's the place of that sort of a stance in a world of people with diverse perspectives about drugs or sex or purposes? That is, is this a conversation among people who share the sense that you should only never escape reality or under the people who only think sex should be about reproduction? Or is there, what's the appeal to other people who feel inclined to sometimes escape reality or sometimes just achieve pleasure? Uh, What's what's the stance toward them? Are they just not part of the conversation or, or, because that's what people talk about, say, sex in larger social or we're often trying to find norms and principles we can share among a wide enough group of people to then agree on some of these rules or principles. Yeah. So I think, okay. So I think there's sort of two answers to the question, or maybe I think I'm not sure. I think I'm perceiving two different questions. One is about like, given what I believe, how do I think society should respond to this? And one is just about like, who do I want to talk to? Um, so to the second question, who I want to talk to, um, I think I more heard the second question. Yeah, that's that's, I'm more what I intended. Um, I think the main appeal of this argument actually just has to do with like um, people wanting an intellect, like people who are interested in an intellectually satisfying account of why they care about some of the things with respect to sex that they do care about. Um, So like, um, and like, and specifically the, the question of consent, like if you, if you really think sex is sort of like, it almost seems like superstitious to me to think that consent is so important in sex, at, like, and it and it actually is that important. 
Um, but without having that importance be related to sort of like a more, uh, a more specific understanding of what sex is. So that's like, but, I think that's my so, main provocation. So, so the argument I might give, like summarize before is the reason why consent is important is because this is an important thing that can go really wrong. Why is it so important? But, so that we may not know that, but like, is that the full explanation for why consent is important? Is there something else about sex that explains why consent is important other than the, the fact that it's important and some, it's something that can go really wrong? Yeah. And, and I don't think, I don't think the fact that something can go really wrong really can explain the, um, and by something going wrong, I assume you mean bad consequences, right? Yeah, right. Like someone being like psychologically traumatized or physically hurt or impregnated or feeling shame. Yep. All these things that would go wrong with, um, sex. So one reason to say that that's not the, um, one reason to think that that's not the main problem is that, um, non-consensual sex is still like really bad, even if like, you know, you can like know that none of those things are going to happen. So you have someone who's unconscious, um, and you know that they can't get pregnant, say it's a man and you know, you don't have any STDs and you know that no one will see you and you want to like, um, like sexually gratify your body against their body body in some way while they're unconscious. And, and you're like, you're, do you're a doctor or something, you know, they won't wake up. I don't know. Um, you can make the example as weird as you want, but, um, like, you know, if you think it would be like absolutely wrong to like, I don't know, handle their genitals or something like that in that situation, um, that's not really about harm. Like they're not going to have psychological harm. They're not going to experience physical harm. Um, but if you think it is in itself a form of harm. So how does the theory that sex is fundamentally about reciprocal procreation explain that? Fact? Well, their unconscious is definitely not reciprocal. <laughs> um, that like that, I mean, that's like a sufficient reason, like a sufficient explanation for why it's, uh, why it's I mean, that, that, but that's this ideal use, right? So we, we need an explanation for why things deviating from the ideal use are especially horrible to be avoided. Right. So I guess what I'm, what I'm doing is I'm saying, um, there's a lot of ways you could try to put the importance of consent. One is you can posit it by itself, right? You can like in the void consent, super important, mysteriously important, sort of a mystical property of sex. It's the, it's the consenty thing. Um, another thing is you can say, well, consent is this sort of like, or sorry, sex is this very special human activity. Um, and it's special because it is the way that people can like erotically reciprocally give themselves to one another um, in this way that's like sort of reproductively oriented. Um, you know, asterisk what I said earlier about what I mean by reproductively oriented. That's not sufficient to draw that conclusion, right? You'll have to add something more about what goes wrong when you don't follow that ideal path for sex. Yeah. Well, I guess what I mean is um, there's not really a difference in terms of... Uh, so sorry, positing the importance of consent in a vacuum is just like a premise that's unproven, right? We can't prove that consent is really important. It's just an intuition that like most people in our society share. Um, the thing I'm positing is also just a premise. This is like my premise. This is, this is what sex is. And this is like the only right way to intentionally use our sexual faculties. That's also totally unprovable, right? So I'm just positing it. This is the only kind of good sex. So you need Obviously, a concept of doing it the wrong way is so bad that we therefore need consent to make sure something about that, right? That that's the connection you'd be trying to make. You have the, you know, sex, sex is about X and these 
non-consent sex doesn't have X and therefore we shouldn't have non-consent sex, but then we need the connection between why, why this X, you know, makes it go so wrong. If you don't have X, that, that would be the key thing. Why is sex? So think of a screwdriver, right? You're supposed to only unscrew and screw screws. And if you try to pry something over with a screwdriver, that your shop teacher will say, no, no, no. We've got this other thing for prying. Yeah. And so so then you need an argument for, yeah, but if I use the screwdriver here, it won't go that wrong. Really. Yeah, maybe right. I'll dull the screwdriver a little bit, but it'll still go fine. Right. So you need a story for why there's some kind of tools. If you use them the wrong way, like things can go really wrong. And that you need a story like that here, it seems to me. Right. So I guess, um, I think both claims are equally in need of a story, right? Like the claim sex is the thing where consent matters. You can ask the question like, well, okay, focally consent matters, but like, what if you have a context where you can have non-consensual sex and nobody will be harmed? Why does that, um, why is that a problem? Um, And the answer is because the, like, is like, is by definition, the only kind of good sex is consensual sex. In fact, the only kind of okay sex is consensual sex. And so, uh, the way I, the premise I've given instead is the only kind of okay sex is this reciprocal, you know, reproductively oriented coitus. Um, and it has the same problem, right? It's like, it doesn't, by positing that I haven't proved that the other kind of sex is not okay. I'm just claiming that it is in the same way that people who value consent are claiming that non-consensual sex is not okay. And in both cases, it's sort of like equally mysterious. Um, but I think I, I just think the advantage of my account is that it sort of relates it relates the things together. Like obviously, my account rules out non-consensual sex um, because it can't be. I mean, it can't be reciprocal if it's not consensual. But it also, um, yeah, it relates it to like some other characteristics that are that most people sort of would identify as being at least often, if not always, true. You know, sort of related to sex in some way. Um. Can I ask about, so my inclination, like, in effect, you're starting with this data about consent, right? But then in a way, you're, um, um, you have this story where really what's important isn't consent, but it's this particular model. Um, so I would have classified sex as being somehow in the territory of the sacred, where, like, what um, I'm, I'm at least attracted to Girard's understanding of the sacred as forces that become stronger when we try to master them. <laughs> There's somehow, and that, you know, the, the desire for revenge is like an example of that. So um, the, like the ways in which our psychologies connect up with both with violence and with sexual desire, they're just very mysterious. And there's just this thing where like, the more you try to like shut it down or whatever, that can actually make it grow stronger. That's a weird, weird fact about only certain things in our lives. That's a place I would start in thinking about sex, okay. um, that sex is sacred in that way. And part of what, what bothers me about the consent models, it seems to not at all acknowledge the sacredness of sex in that sense. I think there may be much more to the sacredness of sex than that, but that's, I wonder what you think about that. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I need to think about it. Um, I mean, that certainly does seem characteristic of Eros, that it has this kind of, um, you can't dominate it, it dominates you quality. Yeah. Um, And um, 
Yeah. And I think sacredness is also like a very um, helpful concept for sex, um, which I think everybody actually, and everybody who believes in consent in this weird specific way, believes sex is sacred somehow. Right. That's um, where I would have pointed to from the idea of consent is that really the thing they're getting at is the sacredness and we should just throw the consent part away. Yeah. Um, I don't know that we should throw the consent. Part <laughs> right. Right. That, that's a place where we might disagree. Right. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So Agnes, you don't want to throw, or you want to throw away the consent part, but I assume you have the same intuitions as a lot of other people do about the not okayness of various kinds of non-consensual sex. Right. So um, non-consensual sex is going to be um, pr- profane or whatever opposite word a for violation sacred. of the sacred, yeah, a violation yeah. of the sacred. Yeah. Um, but consent is not a sufficient, doesn't get you over to sacred. And that's why. Uh, so there's just this, uh, there's this, there's this overlap that has confused people into thinking that the issue is consent. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you think that the sacredness of sex um, means that uh, that there are, are there other ethical implications? I I myself am very confused about this. So um, I think I share many of the intuitions about um, what is um, uh, you know, what goes wrong in many of the, both the non-consent and then the kind of para-consensual cases where it's like the boss and the employee and there's a bit of like coercion. Um, So it it seems to me that like one important concept that doesn't come out in your treatment of reciprocity, reciprocity is close to this concept, but not quite as arousal, Mm -hmm. sexual arousal. So that's the thing uh, 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 Scruton talks about. And I'm like, yeah, anyone who talks about sex should talk about sexual arousal. That's a super interesting and significant fact about sex, where sexual arousal seems quite different from hunger. Yep. Um, and it seems direct, for instance, directed at an individual in a way that hunger is more generically directed at food. Yep. Right. And so, like one one question I had about you for you with sexual, like with sexual reciprocity, is actually it seems to me that quite possible that you could get sex that was reciprocal. Mm-hmm. That is both people wanted to have sex. At least, I mean, there's a question of what reciprocity means, right? But at least in some sense, fulfill the reciprocity condition, but not the arousal condition, at least on one person's end, yeah. would at least be in principle possible. And um, it could be that the two people are married and they at least could have children in your sense of could or whatever. And like, my question was like, where does that fall for you? Is that totally fine sex-wise or like is arousal an independent important condition? Yeah, so I think like arousal... Um plays so like arousal seems like a very important piece of reciprocity um both in that like in focal good sex like both people are aroused and they're also like they're aroused by the other person but they're also aroused by the other person's arousal um and that there's that that's sort of like um you know that's sort of like going back and forth and like playing on it um yeah that's kind of like a mediating force um, and I think it's wrong to have sex that doesn't involve seeking arousal. Um, but I also think that, um, arousal is probably something like actually being able to get pregnant or conceive a child where like, when you know that the capacity is limited in some way, um, it could still be okay to have sex, but you should still be kind of like trying your best. 
So I guess I'm thinking of cases where like, for instance, someone is taking antidepressants and so they find it very hard to get aroused, but they still like value as part of their relationship with their spouse or something like having sex with them. Um, both because like, they're like, oh, this, you know, my sex, my spouse would appreciate this, but also just like, that's, that's like an an important way of connecting, but it's like, maybe the sex is going to be kind of compromised at the level of like experience by this. I think it's still okay for people in that situation to have sex. Um, and just, yeah. And just to know that they're, um, but like, you know, just like do your best, like, like try to, you know, try to perceive what's arousable about your partner and like, try to arouse them. And like, if it's kind of like, you know, not so good, it's just like, that might still be good enough. So this this is a way to coming back to Robin's question, Mm -hmm. because we now have the idea that there's like an ideal case of sex, right? Where both people are like fully aroused. And then there's cases that fall away from the ideal. They're imperfect cases of Mm -hmm. sex, right? And I feel like Robin's question was, well, you, you seem pretty accepting of those imperfections. Mm -hmm. What about these other imperfections where, to people who maybe are not married, you know, or maybe yeah. they, they're not going to satisfy the reproductive condition, but they're going to try to make it as much like the kind of cases that are ideal as possible. Why are only some ways of falling away from like, once the only thing that anchors the ideal is the intuition of consent. Yeah. Right. It doesn't, it's not at least clear to me how you're going to distinguish various falling away from the ideal. Some of which you want to be very accepting towards and others of which you want to say, draw the line. Yeah. Um, okay. So sorry to be clear first, I don't think, um, my account isn't fundamentally rooted in the importance of consent. The importance of consent is, is sort of what I'm using as an in for people who don't find my point is just like consent seems like a weirder superstition to hold than the superstition that I hold. If you want to call sort of a, an un, Uh uh, an undefended premise, um, like a superstition, which, yeah. So that's, that's like the main point that I would make about consent. And also that the intuitions about consent are generally true. And that my, my account actually also makes sense of those in a way that I think is more parsimonious. Um, But to the question of various forms of falling away, um, there are a lot of um, ethical categories where we would have um, some forms of falling away that we'd be okay with and others that we wouldn't. So if you're like a person who thinks lying is always wrong um, or a person who thinks that, uh, yeah, so say you're a person who believes lying is always wrong. Um, there are instances when you say something that turns out to not be true where you don't necessarily have an obligation to go back and correct it or something. Like I, I say something that I thought was true and I turn out I'm mistaken. Um, I don't necessarily need to like track you down and tell you like, oh, I was mistaken. That might be a good thing to do, but like not, not morally necessary. Um, but uh, I like, you know, I could intentionally tell you something that I believe to be false. Um, and both of those are ways of falling away from saying the truth, right? Like saying like accidentally versus intentionally saying something that's false. Um, but like we can distinguish them because it's like, uh, and like the person who's saying something that's false intentionally, they might, they might be describing what they're doing is like saying the truth to the best of my ability, um, which isn't really an accurate description of what they're doing because they're to the best of their ability is constrained by like, um, by things that they're unwilling to do, but they could, that they are actually like literally capable of doing. Right. Mm. Um, so like my dentist says like, Oh, did you floss your teeth? And I say, yep, every day. And I didn't. And it's just that I really don't want my dentist to yell at me. 
And like, if I, if I view myself as being incapable of making my dentist angry, then it's true that I'm telling the truth to the best of my ability, but like, I'm just not. Um, so, um, so yeah, it seems like we can do the same thing with sex where we can say like, okay, like I'm, um, <laughs> like, uh, let's see. Uh, I want to be having sex with, okay. Like here, here would be an example. Like say, I don't want to get pregnant. Like I know that I'm at a time in my life where like, I'm very likely to have, get pregnant if I have sex. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to, um, do some sort of like other sexual act. Um, that's like not going to get me pregnant, but I'm going to like try to do it in the way that's as close to like, uh, pregnancy as possible. So I'm going to like, try to like interpersonally make it feel like we're having intercourse and like, it's going to be a different sex act, but like sort of ape it as close as possible. But like, you're not really aping it as close as possible because you literally, like in that situation, I literally could be having intercourse. I'm just choosing not to, because I'm like, well, I don't, I don't want the, I've, I've chosen not to accept the consequences of that. Um, and so that's, so yeah, I think that that would be like the main distinction for me between acts that would be like, not, um, like me having a non-intercourse form of sex because I wanted to have intercourse, but didn't want to get pregnant would be a way of falling short in a way that like, um, say initiating intercourse and then being interrupted. So you don't complete it, but like, like maybe the, maybe the acts look the same, right? So maybe in the first case, I'm like, oh, like I want to have an orgasm. And so like, I asked my, I asked my husband to have like oral sex with me or something. And the second case, I'm like planning to have, like my husband and I are planning to have sex. There's like foreplay. I have an orgasm. And then like the doorbell rings and we have to leave. Like those two acts both look the same, Mm -hmm. but I would think that the first one would fall short in the sense that like, we were sort of like intentionally not, um, we were intention. We were really intentionally not having intercourse in a way that in the second one we were trying to have intercourse, but it just kind of like fell apart because someone visited or whatever. Um, and the first, yeah, that the first would be like morally deficient in a way that the second one would just be like sort of like too bad or you know whatever um, deficient in that way. So I'd, I'd like to explore the relationship between consent and reciprocality a bit mm-hmm. more. Uh, so if, if I think of reciprocality as this. Uh, you know, physical process, social psychological process by which the two people become in sync and build or build off of each other, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, develop the synchronized arousal and act mm-hmm. um, because of that direct interaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, in a context where pregnancy might result, or at least in a sort of context, that that scenario seems to me like it's reportedly and in many fantasies quite consistent with a relatively low consent context. That is, all of that can happen and reportedly does happen in situations of less consent, say say a slave even, uh, an order, right? So supposedly all of that stuff happens without consent. Um, so it, it, are we gonna change the definition of reciprocality so that we make sure that those cases are excluded or are we going to embrace that this essential concept may on average happen to go better with consent, but that it doesn't actually directly require consent to be achieved? Okay. So you're saying, um, like in the slave case, um, that, that that act looks like it might look reciprocal because 
Um, right. It has a similar psychological, you know, arousal, physical buildup of, of interest. The body is synchronized together. They, they, they go through the, all the motions and people feel the same sort of way they might feel pretty similar. Yeah. But consent is less involved. Yeah. Um, I guess it seems like probably reciprocity is also compromised in that situation um, because in the same way that like most people who care about consent, um, they don't just mean consent. Oh, it just means you agreed to it at that time or something. They mean something more like, well, you, um, you like freely agreed to it. (laughs) Um, So I, I think reciprocity. So sorry, is your point that maybe the slave enjoys it sometimes? And Not so, just enjoy, but like, and, and like all, it's like like sometimes a slave has good sex, is what you're saying. In all the usual ways. Well, but it, but it doesn't meet her criteria because the other criterion is, um, like, uh, going to be inside of a committed relationship and also geared towards having children. So the, presumably, the first one is not there with the slave. Well, they, they could still be committed. <laughs> Um, marriage or whatever. Right. I mean, um, in some sense, a slave is more committed than anyone else. They really can't get out of it. <laughs> um, no, no. I, I think I want to say that it's like deficient at the level of reciprocity, that that kind of sex is deficient at the level of reciprocity. Mm-hmm. Um, because reciprocity isn't just teamwork. Um, and part of part of the importance of it is that it's like... Um, so it seems like here you're you're trying to import concepts of consent into the definition of reciprocity. That no, is- no, sorry. This is this is very central to reciprocity that it isn't that it's neither um, it's neither just it's neither teamwork nor is it just you want this thing that I have and I want this thing that you have and we can kind of trade, right? Those um, it's it's like like the two people have to be showing up to it kind of like all the way through, and that like. Uh, I mean, in the slave case, they, they would both be there all the way through. Yeah, they would both physically be there. Um, They're all pros, probably emotionally there all the way through. They're, they're both socially all the way through. I mean, it's just one of them doesn't have options. The other one has. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I guess I don't really know what the psychological experience of being a slave and having sex with somebody is like. But it doesn't... Uh, I mean, the question is like, where in your concept of reciprocity does this are we going to make these distinctions? What is it about reciprocity that's sensitive to these consent related? Well, like, like for something to be reciprocal, it necessarily needs to be free because, um, isn't that the concept of consent? I mean, aren't you bringing in consent through the concept of free? If you're going to define reciprocity in terms of consent, then of course that's going to explain the relationship by definition, but it's not very insightful. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think consent is just a precondition to reciprocity, if that makes sense. Like, um, or okay, but then that, that's the full explanation for why your theory predicts consent, right? Yeah. Because consent is built into your definition of your concept, but, but, but then it's not really explaining anything in the world. It's just, it's well, just except, the, that, except that like, uh, except that like reciprocity, like reciprocity and Eros are both like really are both like pretty characteristic of sex in most people's experience in a way that just like consent mattering on its own in a vacuum. I guess is it, I guess is part of people's experience, but, um, but your concept of reciprocity you're, you're invoking is one that you by definition include consent in it. So yeah. if you excluded consent from your concept of reciprocity, you just went to a more basic process, then you would no longer have this connection with consent. Um, yeah. Okay. So, sorry, I'm trying to understand your objection exactly. So 
is your thought something like this? Agnes pointed out earlier that reciprocity is a really important part of conversation. Um, but we could have conversations that are free or less free, right? Like someone could pay you to be part of a conversation. You might just do it for money. Somebody could, um, somebody could like coerce you to talk to them. Like they're pointing a gun at you and they're like, answer my questions. Okay. Like what was your childhood like or whatever? And you're like, you're talking to them, but it's not free. Um, and it's like reciprocal. The conversation is like reciprocal in some sense, right? Um, in in the in the sort of functional building off of each other, understanding each other, uh, responding, each other sort of responding way. to the other person. Yeah, good. Um, let's see. Um, Can I introduce a distinction that might help yeah. here, or am I interrupting the line of thought? No, no, I'm just thinking. Okay. We should- so I, I think that there is. We might distinguish a kind of ethical facet of reciprocity, which is something like a shared agreement from a psychological facet, which is closer to the arousal thing I was talking about. And I think what we're sort of doing is exploring that it seems like we can pull this concept of reciprocity apart. And you kind of want it to include both the kind of um, um, the volitional aspect, the the ethical aspect, which is like you're, you're, you're choosing and you're choosing in the light of the other person choosing the same thing. Right. And you might want to say of the slave, they can't make such a choice. And so the volitional aspect is gone. But you also want to include the psychological aspect, which is the building off of each other. And it's not actually clear how those two things are one concept. Okay. You can use one word to refer to both, but it seems like you can pull them apart and then we can ask, which one are you going with? Right. So your thought is like, maybe what I'm just talking about is sort of like consent plus some kind of like dialectical like right. sexual interpersonal play or something like that. Chemistry, they call it. Um, well, chemistry wouldn't be enough because it actually right. has to be actual. Right, but the chemical that. process by which you know, the chemicals are reacting to each other and building off of each other. Yeah, but I, I don't just mean a chemical process. Okay, so I think part of the issue is that it seems like both things need to be present at every level of the process. So um, if you're like, if someone is like, you have to participate in this conversation or you have to have sex with this person, and then you go and you're like, well, I'll just do the best I can, all things considered or something. It seems like reciprocity has been damaged at the level of like, um, of entry. Um, but you could also imagine a situation where um, two people are like farther along, right? They've like flirted with each other. They've danced with each other. They're like in bed together. Um, and um, and maybe like reciprocity has been fine up until then. Um, But then there's some sort of like breakdown either at the level of like response or at the level of will. Um, And that seems like the thing that's happening between two people as they're getting to have sex, like going through the process of getting to the point where they're having sex. Um, Like it seems to involve um, like both of those things all the way through. So, so let, let me give an abstract rendition of, of what might be the logical critique here. So you say, we observe A about sex. Mm-hmm. A is puzzling. By standing by itself, it's weird. Well, yeah, I need a yeah. theory of A. You say, yeah. I've got C. Note that C implies A. So C is plausible and C implies A. So therefore, C is a better explanation than A. And then I know, well, C really is defined to be A plus B. <laughs> and so obviously, A inside of C, A plus B implies A. So the fact that C implies A is fully explained by the fact that you included A inside of C, 
the other yeah. B part isn't really necessary. So it's not really offering an explanation. It's uh, just an additional claim. Okay. So I think, all right. I don't know if this analogy is going to be at all useful, but um, I think in the same way that the two people's interest in one another is going back and forth um, in a sort of like, uh, it's not like a terminating thing, right? So it's not like, okay, A, like, sorry, I'll use different letters. We have people N and M, I don't know. M is interested in N, N is interested in M. M is interested in the fact that N is interested in M and, but so forth. But there's not like a, but there's not like a terminating thing where it's like, oh, well, you know, I'm aroused by your body and I'm aroused by your arousal in me, but I'm not aroused by your arousal and my arousal in whatever, wherever right. it was in that thing. Mm-hmm. All um, levels of recursion. Yeah. And so I think that, um, so there's something incomplete about saying that the sort of interest between the two people is just the sum of one person's interest in the other and the other person's interest in them because the interests are interacting in some way. Right. right? And so this is, I guess what I would think about this on the one hand, this interactive process of just like arousal or sexual response or sort of dialectical sexual response, but also the more like freedom or consent or whatever you want to call it component, because they need to be working together all the way through, if that makes sense. So it's not, I don't think, I mean, like, again, a slave and a slave owner, they can have all these interaction, but somehow you're, you're you're defined, or is there like a physical thing we could watch in the interaction that would be the failure of this thing? Or is it just a logical assumption declaration that by definition, it can't possibly be reciprocal if it isn't free? Um, yes, I think it, I don't think it can be reciprocal if it's not free. Could we see something in it that would show us that the reciprocality had failed in some more direct interaction way, or is it just a logical declaration that however it looks, it still can't by definition be free? No, I think it's just a logical declaration, but I, I, but I just want to push back against the idea that the account of reciprocity is like, um, is like consensual plus you know, the arousal is interacting in a certain way. Um, because, um, I'm trying to think about how I can put this. Um, because like the reason, like, I don't think the two things can be separated. Like, I think the two people need to be showing up to one another freely and responding to one another freely all the way through. And so whether the unfreedom comes at the, co- at the comment, at the, sorry, at the sort of the context of like, well, you have to have sex with me, it's your job. Um, or, or if it's happening at the level of like, oh, um, I realize this person will be offended if I don't, like they have asked me to do something in a sexual context and I've realized they're going to be hurt if they don't. And I feel like I, um, I actually really don't want to do this thing, but I have to do it. Otherwise they will be upset. Like that's also a point at which, um, at which reciprocity can be harmed. Even if the person chooses, like, even if they do have the freedom to, to do the, to not do the thing that would cause the person to not feel hurt, um, that that would, that that's sort of like a way in which reciprocity could be broken. So we don't have time to go into it. I I don't think that much, but I, I actually took issue with the, you know, the book you reviewed and, and yourself in this expansive concept of 
consent where and you sort of have to know the entire structure and the history of society to decide yeah. if any one thing is a consent because it can't be consent if it's in a you know wrong society or something that seems to make it even harder to look at an interaction to decide if it's free or consent because you know by that account you can't just look at the local interaction to decide you have to look at the whole history and society it's all in in order to judge that which seems to be intractable yeah oh i think it's definitely intractable um, but in which case it's not you know you can't apply the concept right no 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 i just mean um i just mean though that like uh uh I think that I think that concepts can still be useful, even if there are edge cases where they're where they're messy. And I think like power asymmetries really is an example of this, like the example that Srinivasan gave, which I talk about, um, which I was thinking probably you wouldn't like is um, like the the college student who, you know, starts having sex and then stops. And she says, oh, you know, I'm, I'm high. I, this doesn't feel right. I don't want to stop it. And the guy, uh, or I don't want to keep doing it. And the guy says, okay, you know, just give me, give me a minute or two to change your mind. And, he, and he's kissing her or something. And then she, re- she reinitiates the sex act and later says, well, that wasn't consensual because I was actually pressured by this norm about how girls need to start, finish what they start. Like, I mean, but I don't I think being pressured by a norm counts as, as injustice per se. I mean, we're all pressured by norms all the time. And yeah. there's a lot of complicated norms that push in a lot of strange directions. I, mean, I take a part of what Audrey's trying to explain is why many people, me included, think in this particular case, it's worse to be pressured by the norm. Um, but I, I actually wonder how your view avoids this. Like, what if a couple is married yep. and the same thing happens inside of marriage? Right. They, they have um, an idea of a good spouse does this. Exactly. Right. Yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah. so it, it seems to me that if the if the thought is, look, sex is so risky that you want to make sure you have it in a context where you avoid this danger, I don't think marriage and even marriage geared at procreation is insured against it. And I actually wondered why universal celibacy wasn't your recommendation. Yeah. So I think, I, I don't think marriage like destroys these problems. Mm. It just, um, it just mitigates against some of them. Um, and the reason universal celibacy isn't my recommendation is that I just, I think there actually are still real goods associated with sex, mm. um, including the ones that have to do with, you know, this expression of like reciprocal erotic love and, um, having children is a good thing. Um, and, but, but that, um, that that's like, yeah. I, so, so I'm actually pretty sympathetic to universal celibacy as a mm-hmm. recommendation. Basically, I could, I could feel um, that. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, I think that I think the sex negative feminists have a lot going for them. Um, and yeah, so I, I think if you, yeah, so t- to justify sex, you need to have a really good reason to be having it. Um, so yeah. If I just put back on that, so, so it's like suppose suppose we were to discover that like that. Um, uh, married people, and especially as they get married for longer and longer, their sex just becomes less and less exciting, and there's less and less reciprocity. Just suppose, suppose it's were an empirical discovery, right? right. They're just there's less, it in. Yeah. They're just phoning it in. There's less reciprocity, but they're kind of okay with having the sex to preserve closeness in the relationship. Or one person wants it more than the other. The other one goes along with it. Yeah. Um, the other one might even have like slight fears that if they didn't go along with it, things would go worse. So they're making you know, and like. Like, would, could that maybe tilt the balance? Like, and now it's like, okay, maybe it looks like some kinds of extramarital sex. I, and I don't mean affairs. I just mean outside of marriage. Yeah, yeah. Sex are going to like overall give you a better risk package, right? Than the sex one where you have these other risks. And especially at over time, the, the sex risk, the risk of the stuff I'm talking about with sex 
goes up. Right. So yeah, I just wonder what you think about that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess what I think about that is that like, um, I think the dangers you describe are definitely like real and people should be careful. Like they should be like morally careful about them. Um, but, uh, I guess I don't really see like a great comprehensive justification for the other kind of sex. Um, and so it's why you're drawn in the celibacy direction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so or like, no, if you have to, <laughs> no, um, yeah. So is there a default here that if, if not strongly justified, you should just skip it because there's substantial harms possible. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I did. I, I mean, for me, that's one of one of the one of the problems for me with that is just that that contradicts the idea of sacredness. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that, um, that that um, the whole point of the sacred is the more we try to resist it, the more it overpowers us. If that's what it is, so the idea of like, hey, this is sacred, but just abstain. It's like, wait, didn't you hear me? I said it was sacred. That's the sort of thing where that that kind of response doesn't work. Yeah. Um. Uh. So I mean, that's that's presupposing you agree with me about that idea about it's being sacred but that's why for me that yeah like I, I could imagine abstention as a solution to a lot of different kinds of problems but not ones that concern the sacred even without invoking the sacred it's just a common perception among a great many people that you can't just stop people from having sex they're going to do it one way or another and you can at best channel their inclinations in one direction or another but but you, unless you see it as sacred you might think yeah but there are ways around that or something or just you know from a resolve or what like you if you see it in a certain way then that route is any block in principle. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm not sure I have an answer, but Agnes, I do have a question for you, which is if you think like the Spartan model of marriage is really good because- Wait, what is the Spartan model? Well, I think the men all lived in like, it was basically like they would have sex with their wives, but it was considered kind of like embarrassing. And I think the men all lived in like a big barracks together and the women uh-huh. would like have their own tents. So like the men would like sneak off and like have sex with their wives. So they would still like keep having sex. <laughs> but like I sort of wonder, like maybe this is a solution to the question of like both the sacredness and what you were talking about, like the danger and marriage of reciprocity falling away. That like you kind of like you sanction the sex, but you make it like a little bit shameful and therefore like exciting or something. Um, and so people are like, you know, they're like sneaking off basically. Um yeah, I don't know. Do you think this would solve like your concerns so, about sacredness? I think there's really something to that. <laughs> I, I, I'm not. I'm not sure it would. There's the problem with sacredness is you can't produce systemic solutions because it evades the solution, right? Um, but um, I do think so. Something that Scruton gets right, I think, is that shame mm-hmm. is really deeply rooted with sex, and the the uh, another thing that goes along with the consent obsession as i would call it is the idea that we should just get rid of sexual shame there's nothing to be ashamed of or something where i'm like no no there's tons to be ashamed of that's the right feeling about sex uh and i see why that would draw you in the sex negative direction it doesn't draw me in that direction because of the sacredness point but um but i but at least the people who are sex negative get the shame thing which is that's getting something important i think um um, so, but I think what that seems to be an attempt to do is like, let reintroduce the shame somewhere. So as to keep the dynamic sexual rather than somehow there's something about, there's something too healthy or something about the, you know, um, let's just have like, you know, we'll all have contraception and, uh, prevention from STDs and we can all have sex with them and enjoy it. And it's kind of like, we're all eating meals together or something. And there's like a, 
insufficient. It's been, um, 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 that doesn't look like sex to me. It looks like we've turned it into something. We sanitized it to the point where nobody will even want it. Yeah. 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 Um, can I, but can, I know we're going to, we're a little bit over our time, but there's uh, something from the very beginning I wanted to get back to the, your, your definition. <laughs> okay. Um, so I proposed reciprocal physical interaction that could produce kids. You said it has to be erotic mm-hmm. and my immediate thought, but I wasn't able to follow up with the mouth was like, wait a minute, that just means sexual. Uh, so, but can you tell me, um, what you mean by erotic if you don't mean sexual? Yeah. Um, I don't think I'm going to give a good answer so I can try, but it would be kind of bumbling. I think, um, I mean, I mostly mean sexual, but I guess what I mean is, um, okay. I I think what I mean though, is, is that the reciprocity is characterized, not just by, um, okay. You can imagine someone two people who are really into improv and are not interested in one another sexually having sex as part of an improv game, mm-hmm. that they're playing, right? It's like, okay, what if like I take off this garment? Okay. And like, they're not, neither is like sexually, n- neither is, neither person desires the other. What they're doing is reciprocal because they're responding to and saying yes, as you do an improv to the other person's proposal. Right. Mm. Um, but they're doing it as part of a game that actually is sort of only, mm, it's, it's like physically sexual, but you could, you could have sex in a way that was reciprocal, but that wasn't erotic. If it wasn't characterized by like reciprocal desire. Um, Mm. yeah. Right. I mean, it was just occurring to me that actually, well, part of your definition is it has to be able to produce kids. Right. So the improv one wouldn't meet it, but. I mean, if you uh, actually had sex, you could actually like Go through. Uh, it. Uh, go yeah. through it. I, okay. Okay. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Right. You and, probably and, do it on stage, but you know, I just I don't know. But it could just be right. Okay. Now, now I'm understanding. Right. I mean, without that, you could even have you know a reciprocal interaction, physical interaction that involves like uh, like implantation of sperm or whatever, right? Yeah. But that it is not sex at all, yeah, and yeah. that would then meet the sex. The unless we put in something. Of, like, I know. Sorry. And I guess by the you know I really do mean coitus. I don't mean you know. I don't mean you're inseminating a person with this. Right, right. But that's what I mean. Is so there, there needs to be, uh, and so your thought is, okay, so in addition to ruling out those cases, we're going to rule out the improv case. Uh, I feel like, though, that there, some of the work that's being done by erotic mm-hmm. really should be done by reciprocal. That is, there's a lot that hangs on what is this reciprocality. Yeah. And I take it that it's not like reciprocality plus erotic. It's somehow an intrinsically erotic reciprocality. Yep. Right. And so I feel like, you know, my next step for what I would want to hear from you is just like breaking down that concept of reciprocality and bringing out like the arousal component, mm-hmm. the volitional component and the like, in what way is it essentially sexual yep. or erotic? Right. Which may you may just get out of the arousal part. Yeah. 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 Um, but then also what glues all those things together. Right. So I think Agnes and I both admired the way that your book review made explicit sort of some implicit rhetorical strategies in the book you were reviewing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that was one of its you know delightful parts. And you talked about how the author is trying to sort of, you know, send away the dogs, I guess, or the, the, the people who might be distasteful in the reader's eyes 
uh, through this concept of, I guess, a reverse implicature or whatever. Uh, and at one point you said the dog should have their day, that maybe it wasn't entirely fair to exclude them from the conversation. Uh, so cl clearly in, in our discussion, it's, it's actually, even when people make their expressions pretty explicit, it's still often hard to understand them and we can misunderstand each other. Uh, my question or, or comment would might be about like, when we allow people to draw these implications of what other people have said, how reliable are we in assigning those implications and how far can it go wrong to allow people sort of to freely claim that other people imply things without a, a check on that? That is mm. how wrong can or is our conversation going in sort of allowing these widespread claims about implications without sort of verifying with the person that they in fact meant the things that were implied? So I, I'm not excited about how far our society has gone in this direction. I do think, um, uh, yeah. So I think if you have, if you have a society where there's a few phrases that everybody knows have really, really specific um, meanings, like, uh, you know, after Nazi Germany, it's like, there are all these words I think actually in Germany, there's like a problem where you can't use the word like leadership conferences have to have these weird names because you can't use. Oh, you can't use Führer. You can, yeah, you so can use like, Leiter, but not Führer. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like there's all these kind of like talk around in Germany and like, OK, when you have something like that happen. Yeah, I guess you just you have it's going to be complicated to deal with. Yes. No kids are going to be named Adolf. Exactly. I yeah, know more kids named Adolf. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, I think I think it's a major problem that we have these layers of things or phrases or even inferences that have become like right coded or left coded or center coded or coded in some way where often people who are using them won't even necessarily know that makes it very very hard for normal people to have conversations about stuff um because you say something that seems like you're like hey i don't know i'm just a person who knows some things not as much as everyone but like i have opinions we're a republic I want to talk about them. And then you, you make some argument and then people are like, oh, this is a dog whistle for, um, you know, everyone knows when you say family values, you mean, you know, something race. <laughs> yeah, rape. Like I love rape. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. What it is. But, um, you know, uh, that, uh, that that's like a very, very hard way to have a conversation in public. Like people. Uh, yeah. So I think it would be good if, and I'm not sure I have like a, a path to this, um, but like in general, I think it's not a good idea to assign like some sort of like implicature to people unless you have like a really strong basis for doing it. Um, and so I hoped you'd say, but I just wanted to make you say it. So <laughs> presumably I thought there was something, there was a tension in the thing you said, Robin, which is like you started with, I love how you drew all these implications from Amia's book that she didn't actually explicitly say, but you ascribed them to her anyways. Well, Isn't it terrible when people do that? <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So like, actually, I, so I think that this is, maybe this is me annoyingly saying the same thing over again. I think that language is also part of the sacred. And this is an example of that. That is um, this implicature thing gets out of hand. We literally can't control it. Right. So like you may be annoyed at someone else doing it and you're doing it by being annoyed at them doing it. And it's so frustrating. Like, I can't tell you how frustrating because I've tried to catch myself. Mm -hmm. um, and I 
I think maybe there should be like a general thing, like a class of like solutions to sacred problems, because these are super hard problems. And it's not a matter of how well-meaning or well-intentioned you are, or whether you're on the right side or whatever, both sides are just doing it. Yeah. Like you just, you just keep, you're just caught. Yeah. In it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And both consciously and unconsciously. Right. Cause like, you're just, um, sometimes you're writing to a particular audience. Right. And so you're like, I'm just going to write in sort of the language that these people use. Right. And to, then to other people, and I think to probably some people, and maybe this is Hester Navasan experienced writing the book herself, like maybe she wasn't thinking like, oh, ha ha, I'm going to make these like, I'm going to consider these arguments that aren't really like considered okay on the left to think about, but I'm going to do them by like repeatedly like sort of trash talking like the people who people on the left assume are the people who would make these arguments. Um, uh, trash talking is too strong of a word, but like, you know, sort of, you know, saying things. Excluding in a certain way. Cast suspicion on, oh, we all know that most people who, who think this kind of thing are privileged white guys, but you know, actually there are reasonable people who think this. You know, there, there's a reasonable way to think about this. Um, and like, uh, so maybe there is an audience that needs to be reached in this way, right? Like they can't be reached any other way. And so Srinivasan is like helping them, but like, it's also, it just seems yeah, I don't have a solution. It's just very unfortunate that this is, and it's, I mean, it's also something that's clearly ratcheted a lot. Um, with- so the, 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 I think the most harmful form of it is where you look at someone's credentials. And so if they're sufficiently, you know, colored, gendered, <laughs> progressive, et cetera, then you give them a lot of latitude for what expressions they use or what interpret you give them a sort of a favorable interpretation. But if they have all the wrong characteristics, then you're sort of justified in making the worst possible attributions to whatever they said. And so there's an asymmetry in the theirs, which means that those other people have to be extremely careful how they talk. And even then they may foul, but we good people can sort of be sloppy and joking and, you know, in, in talk indirectly because, you know, we we can be assumed to be, you know, having a good intention. I don't think that's the worst part, but <laughs> it's a pretty bad part. <laughs> I, I think the worst part is just that we are caught up in it ourselves and that we harm our own souls every time we try to fight it. Yeah. So do you have a solution, either of you? My solution is everybody should just be super literal all the time. I agree. So I, I just try to respond to what things people say directly and not try not to describe. We, we both fail at that all yes, the time. But, For instance, we fail at it by approving in some sense of the for whole first part of Audrey's right. review, right? We like that. That was ascribing stuff to Amia that she doesn't literally say. The literal reading would just be ascribing to her what she says. Right. right? She actually just thinks that white men are more likely to hold this opinion. Right. And you know, but at, but here's some other reasons. Yeah. That that would be another approach. I mean that's an ideal. I I I'm not saying I can do it all or even most of the time, but that is my solution is if you can, ju- if you could just get yourself to just commit to actually being little rather, rather than saying that that's what you're doing. Okay. With a lot of people say that to them, but actually doing it, I kind of just think, and I try, but I fail. Um, but yeah, that is my, um, the best solution I've come up with so far, but I'm open to other ones. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure because it seems like we still do need to have this capacity to evaluate this thing. It's just that like, it would be good if collectively less of our attention socially were spent doing it. And, you know, it's hard to, uh, 
it's hard to fix that without just drawing more attention to it. Yeah. Right. That's the sacredness part right there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, Yeah. Do you both think the reason it's gotten so much more intense in the last, I don't know, five years is mostly about like the structure of social media or the Trump presidency or any ideas? I think Robin and I have different views. Maybe we should each say our views and then we should stop because we're down over quickly. All right. You first. Okay. My view is that um, a big part of why it's gotten so much worse is that we have tried to master it and it is sacred. So a lot of the dynamic is fueled by the people fighting it. I'd say we are in the midst of a a rare religious revival period. (laughs) There's a a new religion on on screen and people are energized and and eager to support it and show their support for it. And this is part of that sort of process. That's where they go out of their way to uh, interpret things in that lens and show that they're on the right side of history. Okay. Well, thank you so much for um, talking to us. This was a great conversation. Yeah. Thank you both. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye.